Good morning. I'm Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family this morning at the Lake Norman YMCA and worshiping online. And 10 years of uh, doing church with Matt Glass, that's the first time you've ever done the, uh, the welcome, isn't it? And he's gone. It wore him out. Well, you always got to try new things. We would love to have you join us uh, with Gethsemane, Prayer from the Porch. Uh, it's not this Wednesday, it's next Wednesday, 6.30 p.m. We would love to have you join us there. number of great opportunities to serve, as Matt laid out well. And just remember, you don't have to serve every single week. There's a rotation. So please do jump in. Church is a team sport. Whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there is room for you in our church family. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. Can I ask you to join me in something? Um, in prayer about one thing, then we'll jump into the message. As you may know, we have uh, purchased property on South Main Street in Davidson. We are in the midst of a of going extremely well uh, campaign called Established in Love to raise money to build a church building there. As part of that, we had to get that property rezoned to allow a church to be built on the site. Part of the rezoning was that we would carve off the front part of the site and sell it to a commercial developer. We are in a very long due diligence process uh, trying to sell that property, and I'm just going to ask the church to join me in praying for the smooth and timely sale of the commercial property. That's really the last piece that would need to fall into place so we can keep our foot on the accelerator. So the smooth, the timely sale of the commercial parcel. Thank you very much. Just keep praying for that because this dude, I mean, commercial development is quite an interesting thing. You get like six, nine months of due diligence. This ain't like selling a house, I've learned. Well, have you ever been to a restaurant so fancy that the waiters had napkins over their arms? I have not. <laughs> Mostly I like to go to the Chili's. The girls helped me find this. This is not technically a napkin, but I have a four and a two-year-old. So they helped me find this as a prop this morning. But the custom of a waiter wearing a napkin over his or her left arm, the custom goes back to the Middle Ages. Even today, it is synonymous with the highest order of service. But things are becoming more informal, so we usually don't even call waiters waiters anymore. We call them servers. And they say, hi, my name is such and such, and I'll be taking care of you. So in our minds, all these things kind of come together when we use the word waiting, or we use the word serving, or we use the idea of taking care of someone, and it all becomes synonymous with that ever-elusive napkin over the left arm. We'll come back to all that. This morning, we want to continue our year-long series of sermons called The Story with a capital S for all of 2021. We are going through the big picture of the Bible that you and I might find our place in what God is doing in this world. Throughout the first half of the Bible, we've been hearing about a coming hero, a wounded champion called the Messiah, called the Christ, who's going to lead an eternal kingdom. And now we're in the second half of the Bible, and we've been introduced to Jesus, that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for, that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, that He's fully God, He's fully human. God is wrapped in human flesh, and He's come to earth on a rescue mission for you and for me to reconcile us to God. Jesus has come to establish God's kingdom to do so in love. 
That's what his life was about. That's what his death was about. And then on the third day, the crucified Jesus was raised from the dead. The conqueror of death, the perfect sacrifice, vindicated by God in his resurrection. Jesus says, come follow me and I will repurpose your life. Come follow me and I will repurpose your life. So now, as we're getting towards the end of the year, we're in the later books of the Bible, and even looking in our world today, what we see is that God the Holy Spirit is filling followers of Jesus and is empowering us to push the grace and truth of Jesus to the ends of the earth, to every group of people, to push the hope and the mercy of Jesus further and further, wider and wider, and also deeper and deeper into every human heart. So that if you are a follower of Jesus, or today or in the future you become a follower of Jesus, God the Holy Spirit is in you. God the Holy Spirit is empowering you to spread the hope, to spread the mercy of Jesus to one more person, as it also sinks deeper and deeper into your heart. Katie read earlier Acts chapter 6. You may remember the passage started this way. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, so the earliest Christians are sharing with others about the hope they found in Jesus, that God wants to welcome all of us home and in fact has done all the work to pave the way. And now the Holy Spirit is using that message to persuade people's hearts, to capture people's minds, and truckloads of people, I guess they didn't have trucks then, chariot loads of people are committing themselves to Jesus. They are accepting his invitation, the invitation that's now being relayed through his followers, come follow Jesus and he will repurpose your life. Thousands of people are responding to this message. In fact, in one day, 3,000 people responded to that message. So where there were dozens or hundreds of followers of Jesus when he walked on the earth, there are now thousands of them only months removed from his death and resurrection. Jesus tagged in the Holy Spirit, and we've moved from dozens and hundreds of followers to thousands of followers, and everything's going great. Okay, big picture, everything's going great. There is this one little thing. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So there's a problem brewing. Have you ever been part of a problem that's brewing? There's a problem brewing. Let's see what we might learn. I'm going to walk through the passage and then ask what we might learn as we walk through similar situations. Among the thousands of new Christians, there are truckloads, or what do we decide? Chariot loads of widows who are coming to follow Jesus. Because the church then, as many churches do now, place such a high value on caring for people who were poor. And so you've got thousands of people who have just started to follow Jesus. That number keeps increasing daily. These people are not very mature in their faith. Some of them have severe material needs. And so the early church created this somewhat complex feeding system to make sure the widows had the food that they needed. And then one day, there was a big blow up. 
And at this point, most Christians were Jewish by heritage. And so the Hellenistic Jews, and that means the Jews who primarily spoke Greek and had more Greek customs, the Hellenistic Jews start to complain, our widows are not getting enough food when the church distributes the food. They start to mumble a little bit because those Hebraic widows, Hebraic means that they were not as influenced by the Greek culture around them. Their customs and language more resembled that of historic Judaism. They seem pretty well fed. What about our poor Hellenistic widows over here? So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. I told you it might come back. To wait on tables. The verb there for wait on tables is diakono, from which we get the English word deacon. So if you've ever been at a church that has deacons or you're a fan of Wake Forest, now you know where the word comes from. I'll take Bible knowledge for 400, Alex. Or I guess it's not Alex anymore, is it? Who's the new person? We don't know. Nobody knows. I think it's Mayim Bialik. So the Hellenistic Jews who are now Christians, are starting to angle that the original 12 disciples are playing favorites. They like the Hebraic widows better. They're discriminating against the Hellenistic widows. And so the 12, and the 12 refers to the 12 original disciples, minus Judas Iscariot, plus his replacement Matthias. The 12 call all the Christians together and say, hey guys, we're not playing favorites. We're just really busy. We're just really busy. There's always another sermon, always another baptism, always another sick person, always another curious person with a question. We're trying to take time to pray. We're trying to teach all you guys how to follow Jesus. We're trying to make sure the widows are getting their food. There are just so many of you. There are just so many of you. When we took over, there was like a few dozen of us. There are just so many of you. At which point someone shouts out, the Hebraic widows are church welfare queens. Someone else shouts out, doubting Thomas, I'm doubting Thomas will remember to bring me my food this week. Now maybe they weren't quite this melodramatic, they did not have social media, but if you've been around humans long enough, you know we love drama. Why have a molehill when you can have a mountain? Right? Why, why say there's a structural issue we can work on when you can make it a people issue and blame somebody? We love to be right, and we love to be wronged, and the twelve are at their wits' end. There are just so many of you. There are just so many of you. There are just so many of you. Verse 3, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So uh, my friend, one of our longtime pastors, Dr. Bud Brainerd, he retired last year. He moved out to California. He and his wife, Becky, are living their best life. They walk to church. They walk to church. And they go to a really neat church, uh, and um, it's a church whose pastor I know just a little bit about, and the pastor loves this little phrase. He always comes back to it. His little phrase is, growth 
changes everything. And what he means by that is that if you're part of a growing church or a growing company or a growing family or a growing college or a growing region or you're a growing person, you're going to be tempted to just do the same old thing just with a little more complexity, and eventually you will realize, no, growth changes everything. And that's what the twelve began to realize. The workload was growing, but all it was doing was overextending the same old people, the twelve disciples. So they have great wisdom on this, and they make it plain. We're not dealing with a people problem here. The problem is the structure of the church. And so if the structure is the problem, what do we do? We update the structure to make it more compatible with the growth of the church. And we're going to put some wise and maturing Christians in charge of that to make sure that all the widows are cared for. There's an important lesson in that. That sometimes you have really wonderful people stuck in a growing structure or stuck in an outdated structure. But it's always a good question to ask when dealing with something, is this a people problem or a structure problem? Because if it's a structure problem, work on the structure more than you chastise the people. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And the original twelve, or the twelve, lay their hands on this group that's now called the seven, a lot of numbers in, in the book of Acts. The twelve lay their hands on the seven, a.k.a. the deacons, and they pray for them. And then they turn the care of the widows over to them. It's interesting they didn't put many more requirements on them than that. They said, we're looking for people who are full of the Spirit and wise. That's what we need. And they will lead us through the situation. So full of the Spirit, that means they're a follower of Jesus and they're maturing in their Christ-like character. And they're wise because it's going to take some wisdom to work out a better distribution system. And it's going to take wisdom to be attentive to the fragile feelings this whole blow-up has created. So they need to be full of the Spirit, they need to be wise, and the rest they will learn on the job. Just like the original twelve are learning on the job. And long story short, the solution worked. Verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. In church, in family, in life, hurdles will come. Issues will come, but the main thing is still the main thing. And what is the main thing? The main thing is that from Acts chapter 1 until today, the Holy Spirit is pushing the hope and the mercy of Jesus further out and further in. The Holy Spirit is pushing the grace and truth, the good news of the kingdom, further out and further in until it reaches every nook and cranny of creation. And this is what happened in Acts chapter 6 because the twelve learned to ask for help. They learned to ask for help. They are Jesus' followers. They are not Jesus. And so they had to learn to ask for help. And I imagine that God used this issue to push the mercy and the hope of Jesus deeper into people's hearts.
Because if we let him, if we let him, God can even use the conflicts in our lives to help us grow closer to him, to help us grow closer to one another. If we let him, God can even use the conflicts in our lives to push the hope, the mercy of Jesus deeper into our hearts and push us closer to one another. So that's the passage, but what I'd like to do now for a few minutes is is talk about what we can learn from it. As individuals, as a church family, what can we learn from the original 12 having to ask for help and creating this group called the deacons? Because you're part of a church family that has been growing for a while. About 10 years ago, we were 50 people who met on Sunday afternoons to think about how to start a new church. At this point, we've about moved the decimal place on that. We're moving towards a building. Every year we see people come to faith in Jesus. We see people come back to faith in Jesus. We see uh, people grow in their faith in Jesus, explore faith in Jesus. I was talking to someone uh, who had come back, had been away during the pandemic, and their first in-person week was last week. And they looked around and said, I don't know very many of these people. That's right, because the church kept going in the, those 18 months. We didn't just sort of pack up and, you know, we'll see you all in a little bit. So how do we deal with these kind of questions? Growing as a person, growing as an organization, growing as a church, growing as a, a neighborhood, a team, or whatever, growing is a really beautiful thing, and growth changes everything. So what might we learn from these early Christians in Acts chapter 6? Well, I want to look at, the, look at the passage from three perspectives and see what we might learn, okay? Acts chapter 6, from the perspective of the twelve. What do we learn about growth from Acts chapter 6, the perspective of the twelve? The blow-up about the food forced the original twelve disciples to come to grips with their own humanity. They are limited. You are limited. We only have so many hours in the day and so many cells in our brains. And as the scope of the Christian movement grew, it required them not to do more but to focus. It required them not to do more but to focus. That meant they had to let a bunch of things go. Things that they used to do, things that they might miss doing. Letting stuff go is always good in principle. But what happens when Stephen and Timon, not Pumbaa, Stephen and Timon start doing things, a little Lion King reference for you, I didn't know if folks were still awake. What happens when Stephen and Timon start doing things a little differently than the Twelve used to do them? I mean, sure, a little coaching and guidance up front is a good thing, but can we really give up preference management? Preference management is when you say, well, I would have done it this way. That's easier said than done. I know this personally. I used to know every person, every procedure, every problem in this church. Now I cannot open the storage shed. I tried last week. I don't know the code. Yes, I've had to let go of a lot of things. Some things I really like. And letting go of things is hard because of preference management. And honestly, it's hard because I miss the closeness I used to have with certain people. 
Just like how I imagine the 12 missed getting to see the widows as much as they did. Oh man, they sure still saw them, but it was never quite the same. Something was genuinely lost in Acts chapter 6, and we don't want to skip over that too fast. But it was a loss that kept the main thing the main thing. And so in Acts chapter 6, the 12 had to learn that it's not all about me. It's not all about me. It's not all about you. This is about the Holy Spirit pushing the hope and the mercy of Jesus further out and further in. And so my focus may have to change. Your responsibilities may have to change. I may have to give some stuff up, like really give some stuff up. Stuff that I like doing. But in the end, it's not about me and it's not about you. It's not about stoking our Messiah complex. It's about the Messiah. It's about Jesus. So they had to learn it was not all about them. What about Acts chapter 6 from the perspective of the widows? I mean, imagine you're a widow in the ancient world. You have very little social standing. Very few people care about you, but your fellow Christians care about you, and they make sure your needs are provided for. In fact, Peter, like the Peter, one of the first two disciples of Jesus, Peter brings me my food on Mondays. I mean, yeah, he forgets to show up half of the time, and when he shows up, he looks really frazzled, but it's Peter. And then one day, some guy named Steve shows up, who is Steve and where is Peter? The widows in Acts chapter 6, much like the 12, had to learn this. It's not all about me. Yes, I have unspeakable value. Yes, you have unspeakable worth. Yes, you should say something when your needs are not being met. But my value and your value is not determined by who shows up with my allocation of the food because it's still food. And I don't worship Peter and I don't worship Stephen. I worship Jesus, whose hope and whose mercy are pushing further out and further in, who right now, Jesus' grace and truth is changing somebody's life, just like it's changing my life. I'm part of God's plan, like you're part of God's plan, but we're not the center of God's plan. That spot's reserved for Jesus. So the Holy Spirit used the blow-up about the food to remind the twelve, to remind the widows, it's not all about me. What about Acts chapter 6 from the perspective of the seven? What do you think the seven had to learn? Any guesses? It's not all about me. It's not all about them. Because you have these seven guys, it's men in this case, you have Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, not Pumbaa, Parmenas Nicolaus. Should I use that joke again at the 11? Okay, good. I'll write it in, in fact. Up until this point, they have been, up until this point, they have been receiving the ministry of the church. Now in an instant, they are asked to be the givers, not just the receivers of the ministry. And they step forward willingly. They recognize it's not all about them. They did not change their own lives. Jesus is changing their lives. And now there's a need they could meet. The power of the Holy Spirit in them and the gifts He's given them, they are willing to help keep pushing the hope, the mercy of Jesus further out and further in. God said yes to them in Jesus. 
And so in response to that, they say yes to a need, to an opportunity before them. We're having to relearn this lesson as a society, as a church. We will have to keep learning it now and in the months ahead that God is doing something in this world and that we are invited to join in with it. And that this church and that every church is part of the Holy Spirit pushing the grace and the truth of Jesus further out, further in. And we can and we should receive that and we can and we should give that. Church is not a product to consume. Church is a movement. Church is a mission to join in. Church is a team sport, not a spectator sport. Willingness is the only barrier to entry. Willingness is the only barrier to entry. So when you and I say yes to the needs and the opportunities to serve, just as the seven did, not only do we push the mercy and the hope of Jesus further out, but we push it further in as we remind ourselves, this is not all about me. It's not all about me. It's all about Jesus, who once said in Mark chapter 10, that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve to give his life as a ransom for many. Even Jesus lived as if it was not all about him. The very one it is all about lived as if it was not all about him. He lived for others. He lived to serve. He lived to die so that you and I might find life in him. And Stephen became well known as a follower of Jesus. He followed him into a life of serving, not being served. Stephen actually followed Jesus into death. Stephen became the first Christian martyr. Stephen became the first person who said he would rather die than than give up his relationship with Jesus. So don't you imagine that all those years later, some of those same widows might have been saying to each other, you'll never believe who used to bring me my food on Tuesdays. Stephen, like the Stephen. I knew him back when. He was one of God's truest gifts to me. So can I ask you to reflect on this question as I start to wrap up? What is God teaching you through Acts 6? especially through the example of Stephen and the rest of the seven. What is God teaching you through Acts chapter 6, especially through the example of Stephen and the rest of the seven? For example, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to change the plan. It's okay to change the structure. It's okay to really hand something off. It's okay that it's not all about you. Are you learning that God is doing something in this world and that He invites you to join in? Are you learning that, there is, that God has said yes to you through Jesus and that there is a power in saying yes to the needs and opportunities as a response to God? Because when you serve, that's what you are doing. You are responding to God. You're not earning anything from God. You're responding to the goodness of God to you. That God said yes to you in Jesus. And so you respond by saying yes.
to the needs and opportunities you see. That you and I might join in pushing the mercy, the hope of Jesus further out and further in. Now the truth is, some of us are waiting. Waiting for God to open a door for us. Waiting for God to reveal Himself to us that we might follow Jesus. We are waiting for God to show us just the right role we should play in His mission in the world. What do you do while you wait? What do you do while you wait? What do you do while you wait? Let me suggest that you wait. You actively wait. You actively serve. You actively say, my name is Michael, and I'm here to take care of you. Because you have found a hope and a mercy that is transforming you. And I hope that He and His mercy will transform you too. And so while I wait, I wait. I wait. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, to talk to God, to listen to God about whatever He's stirring up in your heart or in your mind. Take a quiet moment for personal prayer. Lord, I thank you for your deep love for the hurting, the overlooked, the locked out, the left behind. I thank you that the early church was known for how it cared for those in poverty. I pray your church today will continue to be known for how we care for those who are in poverty. And Lord, through this little blow-up the early church had, you reinforced to everyone that it was not about them, that ultimately this is about Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that for everyone who's part of our church as well, that as we go through conflicts in our lives, or in our church, in our communities, you will reinforce to us that ultimately this is not all about us. This is about the hope and mercy of Jesus. And Lord, that that might change our perspective and it might change how we live. Lord, will you give us the courage to say yes to the needs and opportunities you put before us? Not trying to earn your love, 
but responding to your great love. And Lord, I pray for those of us who feel on the outside of your family looking in. I pray we might know the doors are always open wide. And that people can bring their strengths and weaknesses in. And that those will make us better because they will teach us to be more loving. So Lord, I pray for the person who just needs to open their heart to you this morning that they will have the courage to do that and to be filled with your Holy Spirit that they might join your mission in this world. We pray it all in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.